Hi, my name is I really need to figure out how to pronounce that before I start recording next time. Anyways, I help produce 610 News here on the Mockingbird Podcast Network in Houston slash Harris County. In last week's episode, we reunited with our beloved hosts, Brenda Valdivia and Daniel Cohen. We interviewed a candidate running for Harris County District Attorney next year in 2020. But today, we're going to take a look at one of the 2019 races, because coming up in just three months, the city of Houston is going to elect its mayor. For those of you who don't know, Houston's population sits at about 2.3 million people living in a territory spanning 630 square miles. The city's annual operating budget, for 2019 at least, is over $5 billion. And the city elected Sylvester Turner as its mayor in 2015. I know I can hardly believe it's already almost been four years. While Mayor Turner is seeking re-election this year, there are several other interesting people running as well. And it's my hope that with this new season of the show, we're going to have a chance to sit down with each of the Houston mayoral candidates in the next three months so that if for no other reason, when we all go to vote in November 2019, even if our election is compromised or our votes are digitally tallied incorrectly, that whoever the mayor ends up being will all at least feel a little more comfortable because we will have met the candidate on this show. And I'm just kidding. I hope that doesn't happen. So today we're going to hear an excerpt from our interview with one of the candidates. His name is Derek Bros, and again, he's running for mayor of Houston, and the election's going to be in about three months. Thanks for listening, and welcome back to 610 News. So, Derek... Are you really running for mayor of Houston? <laughs> yes, I'm really running for mayor. I'm official now. You're official now. What do you mean? As of this morning, Monday, July 22nd, today is the first day to officially file with the city as a candidate for mayor. And we just came back from City Hall filing our paperwork and uh, paid the filing fee and got my receipt. And so I'm official as far as the city's concerned. So you're, you're official today, um, but you've been campaigning... Even before today, right? Yeah, we've been we launched at the very beginning of May, so we've been campaigning okay. for about two months right now. And how's how have the past two months been? The past two months have been really, really eventful. I'll say that you know, and we've got a lot of support. You know, prior I'll I'll tell you a little more about my background in a moment, but prior to this, you know, I've been very involved in Houston activism and you know forms of politics for about ten years, but I've never run for office of any kind. So I've already kind of built up a support base. And now that I'm choosing to do this, the support base is coming with and very interested and excited. And so the last two months we've been meeting with uh, different community groups. We've hosted Buffalo Bayou cleanups. We've been host going out and working, feeding the homeless. Because a lot of my work that I did as an activist, I'm trying to translate that into the campaign. So we're doing a lot of the same things I was doing already, but just as part of the campaign and to highlight the issues that I'm talking about. I can imagine being an activist, an activist leader that requires a lot of passion and excitement because you have to inspire other people um, a lot like being a candidate yeah. so what what's kind of your number one issue that you are most passionate about one issue that particularly has been standing out and that I've been getting a lot of people concerned with 
uh, relates to the ongoing 5G rollout that's taking place here in the city. 5G is cell phone technology that's currently being rolled out. And last October, um, I started visiting city council to talk about this topic because I'm also a journalist and so I've been doing a lot of interviews and researching and I found some concerns and realized that other people had concerns. So I started going to city council last fall to talk about 5G. That first video that I did has 900,000 views on YouTube. It went sort of had a life of its own, and become, from that, people have reached out to me from all over the country, from all over the world, and in Houston, and have a lot of concerns. And so I've been going to city council for the last year about that one issue, and then we decided to make it a central piece of my campaign, calling for a moratorium, a halting of the 5G rollout until there's further testing, because there are health concerns, there's also privacy concerns, and there are local power concerns. You know, there's kind of a the state and federal government are running over local power here and taking away our decision-making process. So that inadvertently became one of the main issues that I was focused on even before this campaign. And as the campaign has gone on, I would say that along with one or two issues have definitely been getting a lot of attention. And because of that, actually, I've had two of the other mayoral candidates reach out to me to try to get me to educate them about 5G because now they're realizing there are people who are concerned. I went oh, to wow. city council about two weeks ago and after 10 months of me going to city council and having maybe one council member who's kind of listening, I had five of them respond and say, hey, we're concerned about this too. I don't know if it's just because they're running for re-election now or if they're finally starting to get the picture that people are concerned about this. Unfortunately, the current mayor we have, he is uninterested in hearing any of these questions. He's ran away from me, and I mean that literally three times when I've tried to interview him. When I go to city council, he gets up and walks out of the room before I can speak. And he has received the 5G Wireless Champion Award from the CTIA, which is the Cellular Telephone Internet Association, which is basically the, the lobby that is funded by Verizon and Sprint, who are involved with the 5G rollout. So the mayor's made it clear he's not interested in these kind of questions. So I've had to go to city council. I've had to try to question him as a journalist. And now as a mayoral candidate, I'm going to bring this, this issue to the forefront. I'm going to be in eight of the debates that are coming up, possibly more, but at least eight so far. So I plan to make that as well as the other issues I'm focused on really central to those conversations. Thank you very much, Derek. Thank you, brother. That was Derek Burroughs. He's a candidate for Houston mayor in this year's November election. We'll be posting the full uncensored interview soon. But for now, we're going to hear from our panel with hosts Brenda Valdivia and Daniel Cohen. Now, these next bits we actually recorded during a Democratic presidential debate watch party where instead of watching the debate, we decided to record a couple interviews with the much more interesting Houstonians at the party. First up is Josue Garcia. He's a community volunteer with the Texas Refugee Center, the Brown Berets, the National Hispanic Professionals Organization, and Indivisible Houston. Josue and his family fled the violence and civil war in El Salvador in the 80s, and after immigrating, Josue served in the United States Marine Corps for 10 years. So, uh, like we said before, we're here with Josue Garcia, who's a community activist here in Houston. Thank you for joining 610 News. I appreciate oh, thank you. Time. Thank you for having me. So we wanted to have you on because we're talking to uh, all kinds of people in the community, and one group of people in the community we like to talk to is uh, community activists, sort of a, a part of uh, the landscape that's important to bring in. You know, there's mm -hmm. the press and the politicians and everyone in the chambers, but there's also people who are doing the work. And you are a super volunteer. <laughs> and and um, I do help. Uh, I like to volunteer and, and help out as much as I can and any way I can uh, for common causes. When it comes to refugee services, what, you know, how do you, it's especially in a time like that, it's, this, it's really important. 
Um, what are some things that you do to help and what are things that people can do to help? In there are various uh, opportunities and there is some training that is provided. Um, they call me for interpret uh, to be an interpreter, uh, Spanish to English, uh, s uh, helping the uh, refugees uh, fill out forms, fill uh, employment applications, um, and just to translate uh, with the uh, service providers or the uh, counselors there at the uh, center. Uh, being an immigrant myself, uh, it, it really touches me in the way that uh, all of this and any of this could could have happened to us, my family, and me personally, um, and what's going on currently. Um, do you think it would change people's minds if they saw some of the stories of, of people? Oh, definitely. I think so. We're at times so detached from what's really going on and w from what other human beings are experiencing. Uh, when we migrated, we were es escaping the uh, civil war that started in the uh, 80s in El Salvador, um, in the capital city. And so there was a lot of violence dealing with the uh, recruitment of the uh, young kids, um, child uh, soldiers, and for the uh, guerrillas as well. Uh, so fearing that, um, you know, we escaped the uh, civil war and similar situations, what's going on in Central America right now is where people are ex escaping extreme violence, gang violence, and um, um, just violence overall. Let's, let's talk a little bit further, I guess, about um, what you think would be good changes that we could make, right? I mean, you've, you've, ex you've had to go through this before. Your family had to come here and, like, what what sort of what policy approaches would you like to see take place to start sort of fixing uh, some of the issues that we face day to day? Well, definitely we have to respect uh, human rights uh, and human dignity. That these are not uh, again we are so detached, but this th these are our fellow humans. Uh, there are our kids. There are our brethren, our sisters. These are our fellow humans, and so policies that. Uh, respect uh, human rights, human dignity, um, and evaluate their uh, conditions or their situations to, to allow them for um, refugee status. The uh, caging of our kids, the uh, uh, putting our uh, separation uh, of families, uh, and put an end to that and find a more humane ways of, of dealing with with the uh, issues so you're you're uh, also a f uh, father um, do you notice do you think that there's any kind of divide on these on these issues in terms of uh, younger generations at least from what you've witnessed um, with your kids is there a difference in attitude versus people you see day to day in Houston or anything like that uh, no I believe that any reasonable human being would uh, see this as uh, immoral uh, there's got to be a better way of of dealing with our immigration issues. We we are here. Um, we are here to stay. We contribute to the economy. We we work. We pay our taxes. Uh, some of us um, became very uh, patriotic and thankful to the opportunities in this country. I served in the uh, uh, U.S. Marine Corps for ten years. 
I'm proud of that. And and this this is our country. This is what we know. This is all, we, and we're here. Some of our fellow dreamers are uh, doctors and uh, lawyers and teachers, and so we are here and we are here to stay. I agree. I think any reasonable person should recognize the humanity of people and uh, and recognize what this country is is really for um, and everything the Statue of Liberty stands for. Uh, well, thank you for uh, for your volunteerism, um, for your parenting, for your story, uh, and for uh, making Houston and Harris County a better place by uh, by giving your free time to those causes. So there's nothing more important. Thank you, thank you. I, I, I do appreciate that. That was an excerpt from Daniel Cohen's interview with Josue Garcia, a volunteer interpreter for the Texas Refugee Center and father who served in the U.S. Marine Corps after fleeing violence in El Salvador with his family. You can learn more at rstx.org. Now we're going to hear from another guest at this presidential debate watch party who would much rather speak with us than watch the debate. Cesar Espinosa, the executive director of the immigrants' rights organization FIEL, which stands for Familias Inmigrantes y Estudiantes en la Lucha, or Immigrant Families and Students in the Struggle. I thought this was a really interesting interview because Cesar is pretty young, and he shares some stories about his childhood growing up as an undocumented immigrant, living in the reality that, along with figuring out why the sky is blue, one day, any day, members of his family could be taken from him. How many years has it been since you've, you've been heading this organization? So myself, I actually started uh, organizing <laughs> when I was 15 years old in the year 2001. So this will be my 18th year of advocacy. What? Okay. With, oh, wait, uh, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> wait, you can't just say that you started at age 15. What happened at age 15 where you're like, now is the time for me? So I was, uh, at the time I was a high school student uh, at the Bakey High School for Health Professions. Uh, I am an undocumented person. Um, so at that time, uh, I knew that I was in a premier school and that's when scholarships started kind of rolling in and opportunities and stuff. And uh, whenever it came time to fill in the social security number, I would have to leave it blank because I didn't have one. So it's when I really started thinking about uh, being an immigrant and, and, and facing the realities of being undocumented. Um, and by accident, my high school, in order to graduate from the Bakey, you need 100 hours of community service hours. And my mom happened to go to this immigration forum with this other organization and they were like, we need volunteers. And mom was like, well, you need to do volunteer hours. So go ahead and do them. And so I fell in love with organizing when I was a sophomore in high school. So the entire uh, time your parents were thinking this kid's going to be a doctor and then you get out of high school and you're like, I'm going to be an organizer. I thought I was going to be a doctor too, but yeah, <laughs> for, I, for those who don't did. know, Debakey High School is a, a, a doctor, medical Mm -hmm. specializing high school is ex extremely hard to get into the school I think one out of every 10 students get in like who apply to get in yes out of 2,000 people that uh, they make the first round of applications after you take the quote-unquote test only 200 get in Wow that's yeah. it. So and, and my graduate class there was only 125 of us that made it out Wow so yeah. you had a very high standards for yourself and and for your education and uh, did you always know that you were that you were undocumented or did it come as a shock or was it I always knew I was undocumented ever since uh, we we overstayed our visa when I was um, when I was five years old so my family always had a we had those tough conversations when I was younger about what to do if mom and dad didn't come home of who to call we had a list of numbers uh, hidden somewhere in the house 
uh, that we were supposed to call if my parents didn't come home. So we, we always were prepared since we were young. Wow. Did you, did you have anything else? I've heard of families having go bags and clothing ready to go at a moment's notice. Uh, did did it your family go through that extent as well or is it just being prepared just be just being prepared and knowing who to call knowing who to reach out to uh i still to today know my grandma's uh house number by memory oh. uh so so that was part of the training plan is to remember that number uh, to call grandma uh tell her that something had happened um so we we had that um we had that that preparedness plan uh ready for our family at least okay so okay you're you get involved in all of this. You're what? I'm 18 years old, 17, 18. You're you're getting out of high school. Uh, what was the moment where you realized this is what I'm gonna do? This is what I'm gonna focus on. So when I graduated from high school, I almost got a perfect score on, S- on my SAT. I missed one question on the SAT. Dude, I got accepted into a bunch of Ivy League schools, and I wanted to go to Cornell University, where oh. where I had been accepted. Uh, we try to talk to them. We try to convince them of why they should let me go or like uh, if there's financial aid opportunities because it's obviously a very expensive school. Um, and when I was denied that, there was a point where my counselor just threw her hands on her desk and he said, I don't know how to help. I don't know how else to help you. I, I'm trying, but I, I don't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. And so that was a, a moment in my life where I was like, if this has happened to me at the Bakey High School, where the counselors are actually trying what's happening at other high schools. And so we began what we thought was gonna be a small club of just dreamers getting together, uh, sharing stories, crying, laughing, just sharing resources um, for other undocumented youth. And little by little, we began growing and growing and growing into what we are today. Oh, okay. What was the moment that you realized that Fiel was a force to be reckoned with, that this was now a movement? Um, I think in 2010, when we passed the first Dream Act in the in the House, um, it was it was very interesting because we would get invited to all these conferences, um, and in we would uh, people would ask all these other nonprofits would ask us, well, what's your staff like, and uh, what are your offices like, and like literally the staff was nobody. It was all of the core of volunteers, <laughs> and our office was the the corner, the back corner of my mom's house with one computer that still had the AOL, the AOL program on it because it was that old. <laughs> and we had no like people would like ask us questions like, "What is your communication department like?" Because we were so active, uh, I mean, we were organizing so hardcore that people thought we were like at like a fully funded operation when in reality we were not. In fiscal year 2007. Our operating budget was $500. We spent $400 out of the $500 in supplies throughout the year, and we had $100 to throw the biggest, baddest party <laughs> in the history of Fiel in 2007. 2017 happens. Uh, you wake up, and Trump is now president. And what is the reaction? Well, let's let's backtrack even a little bit more. We actually never slept. Like so, we were watching the results to the very bitter end. Uh, we had thrown a party at our office. The mood was very. At first, it was very lively. We really thought uh, we were going to get a Democratic president elected, um, and then the results came in, and it was like it was just awkward. People started leaving. Like only the group of us who have been there forever stayed, and we and some people broke into tears, and it was really devastating to hear. Uh, and to see people's reaction. 
we we knew that that bad things were coming we just didn't know how bad they were going to be but fast forward till now and things have gotten actually really bad for our community and in part has been the fact that we've grown so much so people reach out to us for more help but in part it really has been that the trump deportation machine has has grown exponentially mm -hmm. uh since his he became president because in reality the immigration issue is the only issue that he really has left to scapegoat on and to uh, continue to rattle his base. So we've seen the effects of what's going on. If if you're somebody like me, first generation American, or you're kind of more on the outside, you don't really know too many immigrants one on one. You we hear rumors, but we're not really seeing the direct effects of what's going on. What's something people can do? now in order to help people who are being directly affected by these policies? Number one is, is get to know people. Uh, what we see is that a lot of people, you know, we, we don't, we still find it very taboo to talk about people's immigration status or, or create spaces where people can come out and talk to you about their immigration status. A lot of people are very fearful. A lot of people require help or assistance or they may have doubts, but they're just so afraid to, to talk about it. So as neighbors, as people, as allies, we ask people to create those spaces to talk about, to just maybe touch upon or, or to talk within their family and friends about the immigration issue. Um, so their families and friends can know that they can be somebody that they can trust. Uh, aside from that, though, I mean, we we ran into so many people. At just uh, just as much hate as we get, as much hate mail as we get, we also get an outpouring of support every time something big happens. Of uh, people just coming out and saying, "Hey, uh, if you if we if you guys need a shelter where my house is open, my garage is open, I have an RV, I have a land out, and so and so." So there's been an outpouring of support, and we really thank people for that because at the end of the day we may get to the point where we may need those resources uh, but we ask people to create continue to create those conversations continue to talk about the issue uh, and to more importantly push back against the rhetoric that that the president has been spewing in uh, in order to really talk about who the immigrant community is which is a vibrant community who's an integral part of our fabric especially here in houston we have 1.5 million people who are foreign born out of a population of 6 million out of those 1.5 million 1.3 million are living in mixed status families meaning that some members of their family may be undocumented others may be u.s citizens or permanent residents or daca recipients and then we have out of those 1.3 million people 600,000 people who are without status, meaning that one out of every 10 Houstonians living in the greater Houston area does not have any status whatsoever. So we, this is a big issue. Yesterday we were at commissioner's court. Uh, one of the commissioners said, you know, why are we dwelling in federal issues? No, this is not a federal issue. This is an issue of the state of Texas, of Harris County, of Fort Bend County, of the counties surrounding Houston and the city of Houston. Okay. So we're seeing a lot of new buildings coming up uh, like the detention center housing children on emancipation street um, a lot of people have a lot of concerns that it's growing uh, just now uh, we're just today a news article came out that literal um, what used to be former japanese internment camps are now ho housing mm -hmm. children so what are things that people can do politically in order to prevent more of them from growing or uh, or voice their concerns to their government officials? Number one is not accepting the fact that these centers are acceptable in our communities. It's continue to voice opposition, to continue to press on in the issue. We've been, we've been very uh, grateful and very uh, proud to have stood with different organizations throughout almost, specifically on this Emancipation Center for almost a year now. Organizations like Indivisible Houston and other organizations have come 
forward very strongly and have been there time and time again to, to stand up and to bring awareness to these types of immigration detention centers. So we ask folks to continue to turn out, to continue to resist these policies uh, and to really start calling on your elected officials to, to start talking about shutting these centers down, not saying that they're not going to allow any more, but actually physically shutting down centers that already exist. In the city of Houston, we have six children detention centers today, including um, including some adult facilities that are also open in, in, our, in our county. Uh, recently, or as, as recently as yesterday, we learned that uh, in the fiscal year 2018, 15,000 people were deported from Harris County, which is unacceptable by any means, because uh, we're now the number two deporting country in the nation. Before, we used to think of Maricopa County as being the number one. Now it's Dallas County, and we're falling right, right in line with them. And it wouldn't come as a surprise that we would turn into, uh, into county number one here pretty soon. So rather than just... Um, you know, say letting elected officials know or talking soft to elected officials really need to push them so that they can fight against the policies that create these centers and that uh, continue to allow them to remain open. So let's say I see somebody posting on Facebook or Twitter that they have concerns, that they want to help, they're they're lost, they don't know what to do because this is this feels overwhelming. Like uh, I'm not gonna lie, it feels overwhelming mm -hmm. all the time. Like. It's one of those things that I'll walk around and I'll be working at my desk and it'll hit me like there are concentration camps in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, if I see a post like that, do I tag somebody in? Do I say like, here's a link to this? Do I like, is there a phone number for this? Is, is there a link over or anything like that on your website or? People can find us on all of our social media platform at Feel Houston on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, everywhere. So if you're sitting there on your Instagram, Snapchat, snapping away, whatever it may be, you can always look for us. And we're always posting information about what's going on, about what things are coming up. Uh, and people can always get involved in any in any which way. We have uh, simple things as, as calling in campaigns or people to be part of our rapid response teams. Because uh, right now we've actually have to create, have, we've had to create a rapid response team of people to go scout areas where ice may be spotted and things like that. So people can get involved in, as, in, in small ways. People can get involved in big ways, such as becoming an integral part of our organizing team. People can go onto our website at uh, www.fielhouston.org. That's fielhouston.org, and there they can make their donation tax deductible. Today, just this morning, I was talking to somebody uh, that during Harvey, uh, we didn't see any of the J.J. Watt money. We didn't see any of the big foundation money, uh, but we were able to raise a quarter of a million dollars, which we turned right back around and gave back in, in um, rent assistance and, and bill assistance and food assistance uh, to the most vulnerable in our community, which were the undocumented community. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I know that it's it's very hot and muggy. We're currently out on Chewy's. What's up, Chewy's? Hey, what's up? <laughs> I'll just I'll cut that out. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, but again, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, keep fighting the good fight, and I hope to hear from you again with good news. Sounds All good. Right. All right, thank you, and we're out. That was Brenda Valdivia's interview with Cesar Espinosa, the executive director of FIEL, the largest immigrants' rights organization in Houston. You can learn more at fielhouston.org. That's F-I-E-L Houston.org. Thank you to Tootsuite Bakery on Commerce Street and Chewy's on Westheimer near West Chase for providing us with the ambiance, coffee, margaritas, beer, party platter, and clean toilets that kept us all happy while we recorded this episode. Free Music Archive for the song at the beginning, Flickr for the starry sky and our new 610 News logo, 
Audacity for sharing its open source multi-track fade in, fade out, and peak correction technology. SanDisk for 32 gigabytes of pure space. Tascam and Behringer for the recording equipment. Derek Bros, Josue Garcia, and Cesar Espinosa for the interviews. And of course, all Hugh listeners out there. Thanks for listening to 610 News, a production of the Mockingbird Podcast Network here in Houston slash Harris County. You can learn more at HTT, that's two T's, P, that's one P, colon, slash, slash, that's two slashes, www, which stands for World Wide Web, dot, mockingbirdnetwork, dot, gov, uh, dot, com. See you next time.